Hey, everybody. Happy New Year, and welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, today, Cody Townsend is back to review some of the big news of December and admittedly to talk about a number of things that didn't just occur this past month. So in this edition, we got lots of topics and a lot of big topics with a number of articles and shows and films for you to check out. And we really hope you do check those out because there is some really great writing in important films and the rest. So we really are only touching on a number of these things, and we really want all of you to be thinking about these issues well. Now, I want to note that we recorded this conversation and I'm recording this introduction on the 4th of January, which happens to be my mom's birthday. So happy birthday, mom. I hope you're having a great day and I'm going to call you in a bit. And it also happens to be Chris Davenport's birthday. And I got to have an early birthday dinner with Chris last night here in Crested Butte, where Chris asked me when the next Reviewing the News episode was happening, and I told him that Cody and I were actually going to record the conversation the very next day on his birthday, and then Chris got all excited and wanted to walk through a bunch of the topics that he thought we needed to talk about in this conversation. And it turns out Chris is a smart guy, and we did end up talking about a number of the things that he suggested. So Chris, happy birthday. It was great seeing you. And we had another great conversation. We probably should have hit the record button on that one, but whatever. We'll record something soon enough. And Cody, you know, even if you and I haven't yet gotten your lovely wife to start listening to reviewing the news, well, we've at least got Dav. And, you know, maybe like one or two other people. Finally, this episode of the Blister Podcast is presented by Mountain Flow makers of high-performing biodegradable ski wax and bike lube. Chris Davenport and I were also talking about Mountain Flow last night, since Chris very proudly works with Mountain Flow, and actually he's already been skiing their new recyclable ski poles, which we talk about in the recent Gear 30 podcast episode that I did with Mountain Flow's founder, Peter Arlene, and in that conversation, in addition to sort of announcing to the world these recyclable ski poles, Peter really dives into the details of how ski wax works and why having biodegradable products that also really perform is maybe a bigger deal than you might realize. And for those reasons, we also, like Chris, are very proud to be partnered with Mountain Flow. So you can check out that Gear 30 episode that's with Mountain Flow's founder, Peter Arlene. We'll include a link to it in the show notes. And you can also head over to mountainflow.com to check out all of Mountain Flow's current products. And now it's time to go ahead and review the news with Cody Townsend. Here we go. Well, Cody, I'm going to actually say for the second time in 10 minutes, Happy New Year. Yes, thank you. Yeah, and I'm going to repeat what I did last time because 
you forgot to press the record button, which will bring us into our next topic is our equal lack of sleep recently. But yes, thank you for the Happy New Year. Um, as I keep hearing, it's 2022. So um, and we were talking before how it definitely feels like 2020 and 2021 have just blended into each other. I can't really discern between them at this point. So hopefully we get a break in 2022. For this conversation, I was like, wow, I mean, this is our kind of, in a way, our it's our December recap, but it sort of felt like it should be, a, you know, reviewing the news of 2021. And I found myself thinking, like, I can't even begin to remotely separate. It's like COVID happened and then everything else. And there's no line of delineation for me. But then more to the point, I'm just absurdly jet lagged right now. As evidence of that, I didn't hit my record button after you had talked about hitting the record button like multiple times. So um, I'm incredibly jet lagged. You are. I Did I invent the term baby lagged? Uh, I haven't heard that term. But I mean, it really is a thing. Um, as I was saying, I feel like I could see, like I can spot a newborn parent. I feel like from across the room, just by the look in their eyes, it's a, you know, you can kind of see it in my eyes, just that sagging, drooping, constantly tired look. Like I saw this photo from a poor story of like uh, uh, this, you know, uh, three month old that got COVID and was totally going to be fine, but just how miserable it was. And they have a picture of the mother and she just looks so tired. <laughs> Like, oh, I feel for you because of, yeah, we're going through the same stuff. Not obviously a baby with COVID. We've managed to protect our son from that. Um, but uh, yeah, baby lag. I mean, I, yeah, like Elise and I, I just don't think our brains have been functioning properly for the last three months. I don't think you recover as well. I just think you're just kind of, you're just constantly tired. Like you're always tired. In certain days, I'm really tired. In certain days, I'm just tired. <laughs> Perfect. It really kind of bums me out because I've been on sort of this sleep experiment thing. And honestly, I've been doing really well, really well. And then I go to Austria and it's just like blown to smithereens. I mean, I haven't like traveled internationally in probably about two years now. And I either forgot every tip and trick of international travel or I forgot that I was never good at this in the first place. But yeah, it's been um, it's it's been bad. Yeah, I don't think there's really many tricks you can do. Like, I don't think you get better at it. I like I used to travel internationally all the time. It's been a, almost a few years for me now. And I've, you know, dealing with jet lag was always an issue. But I don't think it like really truly gets better i mean it just like throws off your circadian rhythm so bad that you just sleep poorly um it's funny because uh with the international travel you know like i have to go to solomon for four days for meetings and whatnot and i would say to like my parents or friends like oh i gotta go to france next week and they're like oh i gotta go france next week and i'm like no no like i'm going to fly to europe I'm going to get up, uh, I'm going to arrive at 7, 8 in the morning in Geneva. We're going to drive straight to the office and I'm going to sit in meetings all day. By about 3 to 5 o'clock, I'm going to be absolutely fighting like hell to stay awake because it's like 2 and 3, 4 in the morning back home. And I'm just going to struggle for four days with terrible sleep, sitting inside an office, and then you fly home. It's not like a, a trip to 
to Europe, you know, like in just a vacation. Um, I always used to laugh about that because we tend to glorify like, oh, you're going to France for da da da. And you're like, no, it's actually it's just like going to a distant uh, meeting room, which one thing I will say, this new Zoom culture is kind of nice is like, I don't like doing those travels and we're doing more and more meetings as a team and product development from afar. So one, it's better for the environment. <laughs> like we're not flying across the country as much and uh, or across the world as much. And then two, it's just like, yeah, less time taken away because you're going through it right now. Like you come back from these trips, you got three, four days where you're just beat. And also like everything has piled up. So I'm absolutely obliterated <laughs> mentally and I need to be absolutely on point. And I assure everyone that is not happening right now. I'm really trying hard. It's just um, I'm not quite at my best. Now, I wanted to ask you about this. I had a chance to watch the Patriarch episode of the 50 Project. And I swear, and this is weird, the primary thing that I was left with from that film was like, you and Hillary Nelson were talking about like, it's so cold. You know, you woke up, you guys woke up the next morning and it was like, man, that was a cold night. And of the whole film, I was just like, is Cody good at sleeping when it's really cold out? Because I think I would have slept zero minutes. And I realize that's a weird thing to, if like that was your primary takeaway of the episode. Primary takeaway. Not not rappelling over like a giant cliff and skiing with like fatal exposure, both above and below and all that technical mountaineering that we did, but just yeah. like, huh, seems cold to sleep. wonder how I would do that. That part seemed impossible to me. Everything else was like, oh, wow. Okay. Spicy. The sleep part seemed impossible to me. Yeah. Well, I actually think I sleep better than any other place in the world. And when I'm winter camping, like there's no other form of sleeping that puts me as rested and as comfortable as I sleep on the snow, which is wild to think. But like I just did a interview with the New York Times the other day. They were doing an article about winter camping and I was just like telling them that like, dude, it's so awesome. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe this isn't universal, but I sleep so well out there. And my theory is that like we, you know, we always like romanticize that cozy comfortable cabin feel when it's snowing outside like to me you get that same feeling when you're inside your sleeping bag like sure you're cold all day or you're right on that edge you're never truly warm you get in your sleeping bag the first five to ten minutes is kind of on the cooler side but then as it starts to warm up like it just turns into the most like cozy comfortable feeling and i don't know it's like maybe the breathing of cold air and then the warm inside like it's just like i sleep so so well when i'm sleeping on the snow it's it's awesome i like crave it i wish i could just kind of sometimes like on a night like tonight just go set up a tent and sleep in my backyard <laughs> okay but here's my question that all makes sense if we're talking about a cold day out and then you actually are able to get warm once you're in your sleeping bag I guess my question, and this was a little unclear from the film, is if you're never able to get warm. And that's the part, because I'm with you on all the other part. Like if you can actually climb into your tent, into the sleeping bag, and you're warm, that's amazing. But if you can't ever get there, you literally said this to me before we started recording. You're like, well, then you just have to like focus on being warm. And I'm like, what does that mean? 
I don't know. Yeah, there is a borderline, obviously. Like, I haven't quite reached that, but I've definitely heard of friends that have done that where it's just, it's too cold. You can't, your body won't let you, you know, sleep because it's so cold. We were, I was on the borderline that night. Um, I, you know, I think it was like minus four degrees out. My sleeping bag was rated to, God, I want to say it was actually like a seven degree, which is random um, sleeping bag. So it was definitely below the rated. And the whole thing with ratings is like a minus 20 bag doesn't mean you're going to be warm at minus 20. It means you're going to survive the night and you might be able to sleep at minus 20. Um, so that was, I was definitely on the borderline, um, but I was still able to sleep. Focusing on warm, I don't know, like shove your hands down your pants and <laughs> in your armpits and <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like it just, I remember, I do remember waking up that night being like, whoo, it is cold. And you're just kind of like, all right, tuck in, try and warm up a little bit. Um, yeah, which I'll speak to that other fallacy. Don't get naked in your sleeping bag. Don't strip down to base layers. It doesn't do anything. Like, sure, you might warm up your bag kind of quicker but like if you're wearing puffy pants and a puffy jacket and then you have a sleeping bag on top of that there's just more insulation between you and the cold air or the snow below you so that's just a total fallacy like wear more layers and you'll stay warmer so what is the coldest night you've ever spent out was that it no, no, definitely not. Um, my first my first winter camping trip ever was in the Arctic in winter when we went to Svalbard in 2015. Um, I don't know what the coldest temp we got. Um, I would say it was probably around minus 30 uh, Fahrenheit. Um, but we, you know, like I do remember taking the temperature every morning. We woke up when the, the sun was up and it was never above minus 21 inside of our tent so uh that was probably the coldest i've ever spent but we had like super highly specialized sleeping bags like full arctic they were like minus 50 bags so slept really great but i will say there was one thing so one of the tricks in winter camping too is like you can never put your face completely covered that's why you have like the mummy style you have to have your face out otherwise you get too much moisture expelling from your body um your body can expel up to a cup of moisture through your breath at night if that cup of moisture goes in your sleeping bag your sleeping bag gets wet and then you get even colder but one of the funniest things was these sleeping bags were so thick and so like mummied around your back uh, face and then sticking like six inches off that my breath would go out to the edges of the the mummy bag and then form icicles that would drip back down and like touch and connect to your face so i'd wake up in the morning with icicles stuck to your face and you're like the first thing you'd wake up in the morning you shake and there'd be these icicles falling into your neck and it's like ah jesus fuck ah that sucks <laughs> that was a terrible way to wake up but the sleeping part was still good all right well there you go i guess uh yeah have a warm sleep environment is the key. All right. Well, God bless us both. I mean, I think maybe the good news is for me, I'm probably going to bring my sleep back around fairly soon here. Whereas you just have like, I don't know, three years. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's what it's funny. Every parent, they're like, the first month, it's the worst. And then you're like, okay, you get through the first month. They're like, it's really like the first three months. And then they're really going to start changing. And then you get to about three months, which it's his three month birthday today. And then you, uh, uh, then they're like, ah, it's kind of the first year. And I think they just keep elongating it. So, yeah, I'll just keep finding out like, 
it's just well, all I've learned is everything changes every week. It's like you you figure it out. You're like, oh, we're on a pattern, and something else changes. So, so we're getting through it. But um, yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully in a few months, he maybe only has to feed once at night is the the goal right now. Let's get into the news. Reviewing the news. We got a kind of a big prevalent topic to kick things off with. Yeah. Why don't you lead us out? Well, first, we've kind of been missing Blevins Corner um, for the last couple episodes. And this one um, is straight back to, to Blevins Corner. So my probably favorite journalist in, in, in winter sports. And so he wrote a very interesting article uh, about labor shortages uh, over and overcrowding in Vail Resorts. Um Click the link, go read it. It's got a lot of stuff to it. It goes through uh, these meme accounts like uh, Epic Lift Lines, which people should follow. It's pretty funny, which is kind of advocating for showing some of these issues that are happening at Vail Resorts. Um, and then uh, goes into some you know quotes from former former employees of, of Vail and Vail Resorts and showing, you know, some of these issues that are popping up, which is we're seeing that right now is that ski resorts under the Vail umbrella are understaffed and overcrowded. Um, and this is, you know, Blevins wrote a really good article. But what's really interesting to me about this is this is making like national news. Like I'm seeing TV news channels in Seattle um, showing one of the uh, the issues up at Stevens Pass. Um, there's this huge petition uh, in Stevens Pass for refunding 60 percent or 40 percent of a pass price for the Epic Pass because Stevens is yet to be op- open more than 60 percent of their terrain. Um not for any reason, not for snow, not for any weather-related reasons, just because they don't have the staff to open their 100% of their terrain. Meanwhile, every other ski resort in Washington are open 100%. Um, so I saw that like on TV news, uh, Axios, which is like usually kind of writing articles like about the White House and Donald Trump and Donald Trump memes and all that kind of stuff. Um, They're reporting on this. So there seems to be this like big swing of essentially this issue of understaffing and overcrowding at Vail owned ski resorts, Um, which is again, kind of interesting because you and I have talked about this and we both took like the, the approach, like, well, let's wait and see how this plays out. Well, it's playing out right now and it's making national headlines that, there's hour long lift lines. There's no parking. These ski resorts are completely overrun and there's not enough staff to help out. So that's the story. I think the main topic right now, and we can probably go on for, for a while about this, but um, pretty interesting. I don't know. We were kind of talking the other day and it's, it's, I was about to say funny. I'm not sure it's funny. It might be interesting. I obviously have been a pretty big defender of Vale's move to lower the cost of season passes. We've spoken about this multiple times in these reviewing the news episodes. And, you know, I have consistently said, I think for all of the talk about wanting to create more affordable conditions, it struck me as... I don't know, potentially hypocritical because it seems like a lot of the same people who are loudly out there talking about we need to make this sport more affordable are then turning around and screaming about Vail making passes cheaper. 
And I have just thought that there is a conflict there. Now, what you and I were talking about the other day is Vale just made a bunch of money by selling more passes. It would seem like that would have a corresponding like, wow, there's a bunch of passes out there. We should hire more people. That is normally, I mean, you've run businesses when sales take off and there's more demand and there's going to be more customers. It seems rather obvious that the move is to hire more staff to provide good customer service. And that's not the response that we've seen. No. And it's like, in all honesty, it's like, I know there's labor shortages. Like I subscribe to the economist. I read everything about like, what are the underlying effects of these labor shortages? Where are they really coming from? Where do all these people go? Like there's a lot of questions right now. And there's a lot of industries, especially service-based industries facing labor shortages. So like, yes, there's that kind of macroeconomic challenge, but there's always one answer to hiring people is offer more money. Like currently, you know, obviously Vail came out this last year and they said that they were going to go offer $15 minimum starting pay. Well, I don't know about you, but have you been in a local McDonald's or an In-N-Out or anything and they're offering $15 to $17 an hour starting pay? Um, currently, a lot of their ski patrol, uh, especially in places where the ski patrol is unionized, starting pay for a ski patrol is $14 an hour below their minimum because they didn't, uh, you know, they're unionized, so they're dealing with them separately. So, like, if you saw this coming, wouldn't you just say we're hiring people for $25 an hour? Maybe if it's in temps, like through the holiday season, through this month where more than half of our revenue comes through, we're paying temp workers. $30 an hour to come bump chairlifts. Like to me, that's where you're like, well, this is, you could have solved this issue and you decided not to for whatever reason. I don't know. And again, I don't know the insides of their business. I don't know if that would work. I don't, you know, but the, a lot of the data shows that they could do it. Like they, their financial reports, their public statements say that they have over a billion dollars cash on hand. So Obviously, they're not like hurting for cash in order to pay workers and staff the resorts. And so it's interesting because there's this trade off where you're obviously going to be like, you know, we're not going to increase our wages. So we're going to operate at 60 to 70 percent capacity with 120 percent amount of people or, you know, 60 to 70 percent more pass sales they had. So maybe more than people they've ever had. And they're like, well, we'll get through it. People are, some people are going to be miserable, but they're going to come back. But what I didn't think they foresaw was this making national news like the way it has. This being the topic not only of uh, uh, reviewing the news podcast, which reaches like a thousand people. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, that's not true. But <laughs> oh, it's like a hundred people. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's our parents. Our parents. Our parents, then, uh, yeah, yeah, I know. I definitely yeah. know Elise doesn't listen, so uh, not not even family. <laughs> so that's why that's why you think only a thousand yeah. listen because Elise yeah, doesn't. Totally. Yeah, it's a good yeah. point. We have a lot more than okay. that, but we don't have Elise to our okay. shame. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. To, to be fair, she has been pretty busy and doing other things right now. She so, has. Um, yeah. but anyways, uh, so like to 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 see millions of people, this be the PR story leading skiing 
right now is that resorts are overcrowded and understaffed. Like, God, what was it? Uh, Keystone is operating at 30% of their terrain open right now. You're like, what is going on? So interesting to see kind of what we thought we could see um, happen, which I want to bring up. Did Rob Katz, I don't know him. I don't know him personally. Um, did he jump ship right before this all came to fruition? Did he see this and like be like, you know what? I'm not going to deal with this. Yeah, it, we were also talking about this the other day. And that was sort of the question. If, if Rob maybe foresaw this quote unquote storm coming or if the storm has come because Rob moved into a different role. So, yeah, I believe like Rob, he left his position as the CEO, but he's still very obviously involved as the executive chair, um, essentially the chair of the board, which kind of has some of the biggest say um, within a company. So, you know, I, I don't like throwing wild accusations out there. I don't know, Rob, there could be thousands of other reasons, but, you know, it does kind of like that conspiracy brain and you sometimes pops that up of being like yeah did he he leave because you're like i don't want to be the public spokesperson for this um what is going to happen yeah and and again my question question is with him moving into a different role and with veil tending to run quite centralized which is well known around the industry if suddenly the person who was directly calling a number of shots, well, he's now in a different role and a lot of local management hasn't been empowered to make the kind of decisions, moves. Again, we're, we're into some speculation here, but all we're trying to do, I think, is highlight or put some of the relevant factors on the table for what for like what's happening. And, you know, to, to my thing where I started by saying, like, I have been an adamant defender that I sort of applauded Vale for reducing lift passes. If you had said to me, okay, here's, here's the thing. How about we have a significant reduction in lift passes, but we are going to seriously delay terrain openings so we're going to have more people coming to these different ski areas with less open terrain to accommodate them. Are you cool with that, you know, full scenario? That would have actually given me pause just because it's like, well, wait a second, where's everybody going to go? Like, how, how, how does this work? But I don't think those things lie hand in hand because obviously, because it's more like you, you can't open terrain because you didn't hire enough staff. A hundred percent. And you didn't, you didn't hire enough staff because I don't know, you're, you're prioritizing profit. You're prioritizing, you know, keeping your wages at a certain rate or whatever it is. I, I don't know. So yeah, like they don't necessarily go hand in hand. I think that's more the the trappings of a, of a publicly run company. Yeah, and I'm saying right. So I'm I'm not saying that those things are inevitably attached. I'm saying this is where we're living. If you weren't going to have enough staff there, then it strikes me as not a great time to sell more passes than ever before. 
And like what you were talking about their centralized model, it was interesting because talking with some of the people at Altera, like Altera, I've heard some of the stories of why they formed and how they had to come and kind of to compete and against uh, uh, Vail. You know, it's definitely not altruistic. They're they're a business trying to operate. But one of their key, key points of the differentiators between their business model and Vail's business model is the decentralized model. So, um, you know, when Vail comes and buys Whistler, um, I saw it where a lot of my friends that worked for Whistler got fired, got let go, and they offloaded marketing, HR, accounting, so many of their operations to Broomfield to uh, office building in Broomfield, Colorado. Um, Altera has left everyone in place at individual resorts. So marketing teams are uh, still together. You know, uh, the the operations department is still together. So they're kind of keeping them autonomous, even though they're under the same umbrella. Sure, I, sure, certain departments like HR is probably centralized, but HR is always the first thing to be centralized. Um, so it's interesting because the, like, you know, I'm following epic lift lines and seeing these stories and you see just hour long waits at Park City. Well, I went and skied uh, Palisades on Saturday. Um, we, at least and I don't get out early in the morning, but we got a little, my grand, my Indy's grandparents came in, babysat them. We got out there at about 11. It was walk on chairlifts, like ski right on. And I was like, well, it's Saturday. It's a New Year's Day and there's nobody here. Like it was obviously there's something different um maybe it's we had more uh you know more terrain open and then people were spread out more but the lift lines were not nearly as bad so kind of interesting to see like is it just these small managerial decisions these business model decisions that are part of of this issue um actually one last thing i'll bring up which i want to hear your thoughts on uh we talk about this public noise and yeah PR can be negative and maybe they sell less passes. But the most interesting thing to me is like you've got Axios covering this. So every politician in America is reading Axios. Um, it's front page of Axios talking about overcrowding in ski areas. Well, currently, right now, um, Vail is trying to purchase three more ski areas, Seven Springs, Laurel, and Hidden Valley in Pennsylvania. So it'll go from 33 to 36. And this key quote from Storm Skiing Journal um, says Vail owns 33. It will soon own 36 if regulators approve of its sale. So when it comes to uh, mergers and acquisitions and approval of that, this couldn't be at a worse time for Vail to be like national news, politicians, regulators, the the most anti-monopoly um FTC that's happened in generations is currently in place in the Biden administration. Are they going to get approval? Are they going to see some of this stuff and being like, well, obviously you guys is, I don't know, you're creating a, a monopoly in these areas and, you know, completely, I don't know what they would think about it, but you're just like hour long lift lines, overcrowding, traffic accidents, sh shifting the burden of running like this business model on infrastructure, like highways, roads, towns, um, the homeowners, renters, mountain town residents, like our regulators going to look at this, be like, yeah. no, we're not going to prove it. I don't know, man. I, <laughs> I guess we're about to find out like how big or little, well, the American ski industry is, you know, or kind of matters in the political landscape, or if they're like, we're frying way bigger fish than that. Totally. 
Well, we did see it earlier this year when we were talking about the fast pass things, you know, yeah, Senator Ron true. Wyden from Oregon There's commenting about yeah. that. So you're like, so there is some people are potentially paying attention to this. Um, you know, like the Department of Interior has talked about uh, operating on federal land. So there's like some, I think it's becoming more prominent on a, on a political landscape, um, skiing and ski areas. So um, speaking of which, um, we can maybe end up jumping. Uh, this topic could, uh, we could probably go on for hours and never solve anything, but it's just an interesting topic to continue to follow as as this develops. But like, yeah, we haven't actually heard any bitching about the fast pass. So we, you know, we took that let's wait and see haven't seen anything about that the veiled news has definitely been dominant of it so maybe it's been much ado about nothing maybe the pr was worse than the the reality but um still waiting to see if i don't know if that comes to more of a prominent noise yeah actually that's a good point i personally haven't heard anything and i have more people than ever sending me you know, links to articles and, and, and the rest. And, and yeah, thanks to those of you who have sent me stuff and, and put stuff on our radar and, uh, we'll, we'll do our best to sort of sift through and, and address some of the most interesting topics as, as we see them. So thanks. But yeah, I, I have not heard on that one. So well, we'll continue to monitor. We, we were predictive on this veil thing, maybe not on, on the fast pass. So yeah, let's jump into the next topic. You brought this one up. I did. I I don't have much to say about this. It's more like just putting it on our collective radars. Just an article that was in the Wall Street Journal about a pending shortage for lithium batteries. You know, I think I, perhaps like a good number of us, have been quite interested in a stronger, bigger movement toward electric vehicles. But that's going to be a bit of a problem if we run into a lithium battery shortage. And I mean, I think these are the pains of evolving into any new emerging technologies. There's always going to be sort of, you know, infrastructure difficulties in this. And I don't know. Do you feel the same sort of weight of this or have you been more like, I don't know, I never was um, quite as enthusiastic about electric vehicles kind of taking over. Maybe you were just less enthralled with the idea of moving to an EV world than I was. Yeah, I think, no, I feel like we've, I've always been like, no, we need to shift to something better. Um, But to me, like the lithium battery shortage, like, you're just like, let's deal with that problem when we get through this problem. Because this problem of CO2 in our atmosphere and the the greenhouse gas effects and the climate change that is happening is the most dominant issue that we got to deal with. And like, let's just switch over and yeah, lithium ion batteries may not be the 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 greatest thing, you know, the, the mining of it, the shipping of it, the, the lifetimes, it might not be as environmentally friendly as we hope, but with more innovation, we'll continue to get better. But like right now we are like, well, we just got to get it off internal combustion engines. We got to get off, uh, you know, greenhouse gases. So to me, it's kind of like, yeah, 
that's an issue, but like whatever, we'll deal with that problem. Cross that bridge when we get to it. So um, obviously we need to keep looking at these things, but uh, I think to me, it's like, yeah, uh, having more EVs on the road right now will help us quicker get to a place where we can kind of stabilize our climate. Um, that's what, that's what I look at. And that makes sense. I think from, you know, not every problem can be solved at once. And these things tend to be incremental, especially when we're talking about massive changes of infrastructure, basically. And so I think I'm with you and I, I think it'll, the devil will be in the details. Like, well, how scant is the supply of lithium? How quickly might there be emerging technologies that will enable us to, you know, find other materials, other sources, right? But it is, we're, we're betting right now on, it's that whole thing, like, do we all just drive a lot less, go back to bicycles? And I mean, this gets back into our mountain town economics and our our planning and development stuff, right? Like, can we create more pedal-friendly cities and communities, create better public transportation infrastructure? Because if not, we are just absolutely wagering on technology, new and better technology to save us from ourselves. Yeah, which I will always say, like I'm kind of an optimist and I do think humanity every time we say uh, faced massive issues we technologically innovate our way out of them um i do think you know all of a sudden we mix politics and government and business into it things can get complicated but all all options have to be on the table when it comes to to climate change you know like um i see a lot of conservative minded environmentalists you know really championing for nuclear power um and you see a lot of more on the left green side being like no let's go other ways but to me you're like well it should be on the table like nuclear power has 98% less carbon output. Like we're just, it should be on the table because we can quickly get that up to speed. Um, and yes, we all of a sudden have to deal with nuclear waste and all these other hosts of issues. But again, I'm kind of like, let's kick that can down the road. Let's get the fuck off carbon emissions as quick as possible. So we don't keep fucking up our environment to the plant till this planet becomes unlivable. And then we'll deal with that solution. If we have to I don't know, inject nuclear waste into space through a nuclear-powered rocket? Cool, we'll figure that out. But right now we can't do it, but maybe in 30 years we can. So um, I just look at, like, again, just we have to figure out ways to get off it. I have to figure out my my own way to get off of it. You know, there's definitely changes I'm doing in my own life. Um, but, like, how when is the point where I'm going to be able to switch to all electric vehicles for, for my job, for what I do? Like, those are the, the questions we all need to be asking ourselves. Where to? Uh, oh, yeah. This was an article you found. And this is kind of an article that's been really, I don't know, topic of my mind. And we've sort of talked about it a lot um, over the last few years. But uh, uh, the this article that came up in The Atlantic, it was part of a series about who owns America's wilderness um, and an Atlantic article about returning the national parks to the tribes. Um, to me, I thought this article just did a really, really good job of showing the history of national parks and its impacts on in Native Americans, indigenous peoples, um, both both old and both today. Um, I, one of the things I've realized over the last like three years and 
the listeners will know, I keep kind of diving into books about uh, Native American history, about issues and whatnot, mainly inspired from friends that I've made over the last few years. And it's like pretty fascinating because we're not taught anything in school about the history of of tribes in America, um, the, the detailed level, the modern history, things that have happened within this past century, um, just all of these stories. And so I thought this was this uh, article in the Atlantic did a really good job of kind of summing up national parks, their tool to both preserve uh, beautiful places, but then their roots that are just stained in blood. And also the way they've been kind of used to keep Native Americans out of national parks. Um, uh, it, it's just a overall kind of Good synopsis if you've never heard anything about this issue to to read this article. Yeah, and honestly, I for me personally, I think I want to leave it there. I think rather than like weighing in, here's my take on this, I would much rather for the moment have people go read this for themselves. And and um, so this link will be in the show notes to this episode. This topic is too big to kind of just do in the middle of a, you know, one of these conversations. I think I can foresee maybe doing, um, you know, a multi-series episode on this at some point. But these are seriously big topics. And yeah, for those who have not checked this out or spent much time thinking about this, I'm I'm happy enough for the moment to direct you to this. Maybe this is something we can kind of come back on. I'll add one thing to this, actually, because the one thing it kind of hints at, but is a little bit left um, unsaid, is the definition of wilderness. So um, this is something, a topic that have been brought up to me multiple times, mainly through indigenous friends, that our modern definition, a definition that is like entrenched in the Wilderness Act, like what is the wilderness? Um our modern colonial American white, whatever kind of definition that you want to label it is essentially says wilderness is where no human should be. The wilderness is unspoiled. It is based in this ideology that one humans are horrible. And if we go into a wilderness, we're going to just destroy it. Like that is kind of the nature of what we do. Whereas when you go to indigenous definitions of wilderness, Indigenous definitions are no, no, humans belong here. Humans are a part of this. Um, there's books, there's studies that have shown how humans can have positive impacts on wilderness, both balancing out the, the cycles of life, balancing out uh, overgrowth, balancing out um, the, the food chain. There's, there's like, very qualitative studies that have shown how, you know, tribal impacts with the uh, Native American tribes who have such a uh, deep history and culture related to the land can have positive impacts on the wildland around them. I know it's completely counter to the way we think of ourselves. So to me, like that's one of the interesting things that was not left in said is, is think about your definition of wilderness. Our definition of wilderness as modern Americans says like no humans. And that's how when I've dealt with the national parks, they say the same thing. Like when I talk to national park managers, they're worried about people 
being in the wilderness. Like I had one particular guy saying, we're worried about people ever going into that area. So we don't want you to promote that area. And, you know, to me, and there's like, well, what is wilderness for? It's just this locked off, like jailed land where no humans are supposed to go. Whereas the indigenous definition of wilderness is like, no, we're we are animals too. We are two-legged creatures on this earth. Like we're, we're part of this. This is a place for healing. This is a place for medicine. This is a place for, for growth. And so it's interesting to, to think like, oh yeah, just the, the definition of one word can drastically impact how you look at this. And I think it's kind of at the root of national parks, um, the way we treat them. Um, and then the way that, you know, uh, Native Americans feel completely excluded from them because of the fact that we treat it like no humans, closed. Yeah, it's a big one. And I, uh, an, another question I have is whether an institution, right? If we take the national park system as an institution, what is the hope or the likelihood or the ability for this particular institution to actually pivot or change? You know what I mean? Or like, is, is it, is it sort of too big of a ship that is what it is, you know, or is there hope that maybe some thoughtful, smart modifications and adjustments could be made? Or if actually anything were to change, it's going to be a dismantling, you know, kind of a full deconstruction. No, I don't think it'll be dismantling because we saw a massive change just last year with the price versus bar ruling that essentially said that, you know, national parks telling filmmakers you have to spread the gospel of the national park. Otherwise, we won't approve of your film permit was an infringement upon the first your, our First Amendment rights as Americans. So that's a drastic change. Like they essentially you have parks saying that, like, if you come into this park, you can now, I don't know, document, tell a story um, in your own way. Before, if you wanted to do something, you they were essentially squashing your First Amendment rights. So that was a big, big change in just the, the behavior of the national park. So... Um, I will. Uh, there's one little thing I'll add to the, to add to this, and this is kind of what I th saw was the best uh, part of this article. And I'll pull this quote out, and you might see like if you do, you know, follow uh, modern Native Americans on social media, read about cultural issues, you see that the the slogan "land back" quite often, and a lot of people is like, "Oh, just give all the land back." It seems very aggressive. You're like, no, it's it's not actually. There's a little bit more definition to it, and the definition in this article, which I thought was really really good, was that they this article was um, putting forth the tribal management of parks uh, or essentially being a part of how we manage these places. So, and this is the quote, transferring the parks to the tribes will protect them from partisan back and forth in Washington. And that's what I love most because we're, if we can keep these more stable, because ultimately as much as I'm saying some of the stuff of our definition of wilderness is wrong, um, you know, these parks have been uh, rooted in blood and all these things, they're ultimately very good. And they, they do protect some of the most beautiful places in North America from any sort of development, which is awesome. We don't want to develop these places. We don't want to mine and drill. So the fact though we're seeing parks and wildland spaces being like 
thrown back and forth from administration to administration, like shrunk, enlarged, shrunk, enlarged. And if we can kind of make this a little bit more permanent, it would be, I think, better for, for our land in general. Check out this article. And there's actually a series of articles and it's excellent. Yeah, I, uh, I like the idea of revisiting this and maybe doing a series kind of like we did with Mountain Town Economics to, to just talk to some different, very informed folks along these lines. Um, but it's absolutely, I think, worth all of our time to, to think through these things and, and um, look, if, if there can be a better system, let's get there. Um, next little topic. It was kind of funny. We ended up doing like 15 minutes on something. We're like, just read it. I know. Uh, I know. Sorry. I'm, I'm passionate about that too. Um, yeah, we're, we're sorry, listeners. But yeah, read it again. But uh, this <laughs> is an article that uh, is probably actually, you know, talking about very divisive issues like Vail, um, National Parks, Definition of Wilderness. But this is probably the most divisive issue in all backcountry skiing, and that's skiing with dogs. Um, and this uh, was from ABC News and kind of made national headlines of Helmet Cam video captures Colorado college students rescuing dog. Um, very happy ending, but also like some horrible images of a, a story of a guy, dog uh, went out off trail on Berthoud Pass, uh, triggered an avalanche and high avalanche danger and the dog got buried and was buried for 20 minutes. No beacon, no obviously any way to find him, but um a couple college kids came and helped, um, and they miraculously found this dog and were able to dig him out. And the footage is pretty harrowing, and the the dog was was fine. So, um, really happy ending to what could have been a really horrible story. But um, my thing is, is, just don't ski with your dog. And I'm not saying you, no one should ski with their dog. I'm just saying don't ski with your dog. Send all hate mail to. At Cody yeah. Townsend. Dogs suck. I hate them. Just keep them out of it. Okay, no, I love dogs. Um, but don't skew your dog when the avalanche danger is anything but low. Like, maybe moderate. But, like, truly, like, people make better decisions. Because, like, that avalanche, the dog actually triggered the avalanche. And one, could have killed himself. It could have been, we all hate seeing dogs killed like i mean hell there's a movie franchise called john wick based about a dog being killed and like guy kills like a hundred people because his dog got killed like people we adore them as humans and it's really tragic when you see an innocent dog being killed by an avalanche um so one there's that risky two like could have triggered on other people um you know like then you all of a sudden you're putting other people on risk because dogs don't know avalanches they don't know where they're going they don't know that it's a high avalanche danger and you could be on your low angle high point tour but like in this instance a dog went wandering off and triggered an avalanche so i just like it's just to only do it like springtime low moderate it's just it's not fair dog doesn't know he's taking his risks going out there so i don't know just my PSA for everybody. But Cody doesn't hate dogs, just for the record. So I love dogs. He loves dogs. All right. Well, back to back to a common topic around here. What do you where do you want to go? Uh so um almost a little pushback to our first topic and some of your stuff. Um so this is pretty interesting. Uh Outside Business Journal um wrote about the essentially the state of the industry and especially when it comes to uh inclusivity. Um mainly what it 
walked away from in this article is that nothing has changed. It's still a very rich white sport. Um, and so to me, like one of the interesting things is we often talk about these cheap pass prices and we, we look at it as an avenue for more people to get into it. Um, you know, it's it's very exclusionary when a season pass is you know, eighteen hundred dollars um, or, you know, actually when a lift ticket is two hundred dollars. But um, what I'm seeing in this article is that it's not, it's not a way. The cheap season pass isn't bringing in new people per se. And other data backs that up. Like there's this um, from Statista, Statista uh, which is using SIA report. Since 2001, in 2001, there was 57 million skier days. Um, in 2019, they don't have 21's data yet. There was 59 million. So like a growth of like 1.7 million vis- skier days. And it's been flat for a decade. So like to me, like, I I feel like I want to kind of put it to bed a little bit that cheap pass prices are a way to diversify our sport across economic spectrums, across racial spectrums, across gender spectrums. Like, it's just, I don't know if that's the way. Because um, to me, uh, I've always pushed back on being like, you know, like the, the expensive pass thing was like, it was good, it was bad. Cheap pass prices, they're good, they're bad. I don't know what to think, but maybe it's an avenue for people to, for the sport to kind of grow in a in a different way. And I don't know, like the data is showing it's not. Just to be clear, because you sprung this article on me right before we started recording. So like I have barely had a chance to skim this. Isn't it too early to say that the new, like the new, new cheap price passes have no impact? I mean, they've been going on for eight years. Well, like, is that enough? I don't know. I still feel like this past year, that was another significant drop in price. And obviously, we're talking about, I'm talking specifically about Epic Passes here, but I mean, what sales were 2.1 million of them. And so, you know, I can tell you, talking with, Ski companies and ski boot manufacturers, they all talk about like, oh my gosh, like we had to raise the price of our ski by $9 and sales completely suffered. You know what I mean? Like there is a lot of price sensitivity, I think, in in these lines. And so I guess I'm just unsure if prices are going to stay at around whatever, I think 580, call that the over under. 580 bucks for a epic local pass or something that strikes me as a new world when it comes to price points and so i just don't have a sense of um you know where the where the markers are where it's like oh you know this is a brave new world or like you're you're kind of approaching this from the point of view of we've been in the land of cheap passes i'm just not sure we've been in this land of cheap passes and certainly, you know, making lift passes more affordable is absolutely not the silver bullet that is going to single-handedly lead to this magical new world, you know, that is far more affordable and inclusive. It's one of the mechanisms. And I'm prepared to be convinced if someone can show me the data that making or sort of reverting to a world of more expensive 
lift passes actually somehow is an aid to becoming a more affordable and inclusive sport. Yeah. And maybe it's not doesn't have anything to do with the costs because you're, you're trading off between cheap pass prices or expensive pass prices, cheap day tickets versus expensive day, day tickets. And maybe if we want to make this sport more accessible to more people, it has to do with media. And maybe it has to do with more inclusion in the way we, we tell stories, the people that are in there. Because like one of the great quotes from this, let me pull this up. Um, more than 70% of survey respondents, the numbers indicate, said that they were introduced to snow sports through family or friends. So, you know, maybe it's 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 getting, uh, you know, I used to always say, like, you get you get a mom to ski, you get the whole family to ski. You get a dad to ski, he's going to go with his buddies or himself. Um, so it's that kind of feeling like maybe it's just in that sort of way. Maybe this is a longer term thing. But I just, I, 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 I to me, it's like... These cheap pass prices and the argument that that is making the sport more accessible, I don't know if it's as true as we'd like to believe. Um, it's still really expensive sport, and it may never be a cheap sport, and we may have to live with that for the rest of our lives. Like, it is expensive to make the gear. Like, I know what are the lo loss leaders for, for ski companies, and generally, it's the most expensive gear is they're making the least money on. So, like, making cheap products to make it more accessible is actually really good for the industry, and a lot of the industry is trying to do that. So, maybe it's, you know, maybe we're just never going to be a cheap sport, even though I, I want it to be, because I think... The more people that we have skiing, the more people that are like love the mountains, the more people that are going to be advocating for uh, better climate policy and politicians and companies like it's just it's a great sport. Um, and the more people that advocate for snow, you know, like if we're advocating for snow in California, that means we're advocating for our water supply and our farms and our food, too. So it's not a bad thing to have more people that are that are advocating for it. But maybe I guess to me, it's just saying like. This study, some of the data that's showing how the skier visit days are totally flat, um, that, you know, we're uh, not increasing diversity isn't necessarily because of cheap pass prices. They're they're the the driver to to a place of more diversity um, and maybe expensive pass prices aren't essentially the antithesis to increasing diversity. Maybe it's some other avenue we got to look at. Ugh. Big topics. Yeah, my head hurts because I'm so tired. It's feel like I'm taking so much energy to think right now. I'm going to take a nap after this. I think we should move to what we've been reading and or watching, etc. I'm ready for to talk about some shows. <laughs> yeah, some more fun. Yeah, totally. Uh, what, have, what have you been watching? Well, I, I need to start here because I have seen some lists of like best show of the year and listen to some podcasts where they have covered this. And there is no question in my mind that succession is so far and away the best show of 2021. And I think that it somehow it was so good that it's now like not a cool pick for best show of 2021. You know what I mean? Like it's almost gotten to, it's like when Jordan wasn't winning the MVP award every year. We're like, yeah, yeah. You know, well, Michael Jordan is Michael Jordan. Let's give it to somebody else. That's what I feel like is happening with succession right now. And I would just like to go on record 
to say that no other show, TV show or film that I watched in the year 2021, well, contained three episodes that were straight up Shakespearean. For the record, I believe it was episode two, six, and eight, as I kept texting you and kind of losing my mind about. This was so high level. I don't know what to say. The actors were amazing. The writing was just blowing my mind. And that's that. And so Succession, the clear winner for me for 2021. I would 100% agree with you. And I still see people, I was getting some tags, like, I'm trying to watch it. I'm trying to get into it. It's hard. And I'm like, yeah, again, I'm sorry. Like, the downside is the first four episodes are a little bit tough to get through. By episode five, you're going to be hooked, and then you're going to be on for one of the best rides of TV, I think, of yeah, the last couple of years. I, it's, and then... The biggest thing to me, which was really, we talked about this, is that that profile on Jeremy Strong after C- after episode eight and before episode nine, uh, the, the season finale, was just like, uh, I don't know, it was like throwing a hand grenade into a cloud- crowded room or something. I, I can't think of an analogy for it. It just like exploded because one, it was brilliantly written. Two, it just like, wow, Jeremy Strong sounds like, a straight up crazy person and then three like no other interview i've ever seen with an actor or celebrity that is currently a part of a show having other cast members just like kind of taking cheap shots at him and telling him like yeah he's kind of hard to work with it's kind of psychopath and all these things you're like you're you're sitting there having brian cox telling him pretty much just like just fucking act man don't go through this whole crazy method actor thing just like just buck up son which then i i guess yeah spoiler alert no don't um, do it no don't, don't do, do it, it. No. okay don't do it don't well do it, it just throws so much drama into episode eight and i would suggest everyone that hasn't walked succession to watch episode eight then go read the profile on jeremy strong and then ask yourself and i'm this will kind of sort of spoil it but not but then ask yourself after reading it is kendall dead and then watch season nine episode nine so you just you have to go through that week that i think we all went through as succession fans of just going like oh my god just going back and forth in my own head for a week being like is he dead is he not is he dead is he coming back like this article makes it seem like he of course he's dead but there can't be like you just it was it was a good emotional roller coaster i would say that uh was a fun thing to go through in pop culture yeah and by the way when you said you had his fellow actors taking cheap shots at him i am not at all sure those are cheap shots those may have been extremely well earned shots yeah no they they weren't cheap shots they were just like straight up shots and just like just shots and they're like yeah he's a pain in the ass this, which I was texting with you after I was like, dude, you you got to read this Jeremy Strong profile. I just had the very happy accident of having been steeped in this succession stuff. It's blowing my mind at the Shakespearean level of writing. And I mean the writing people, like the words. It's the best writing I've seen on TV, like in my entire life. And then I read this profile of Jeremy Strong, and then I watch The Alpinist. 
Now, Cody has been kind of busy. Cody has not seen the Alpinist yet. And so we are going to have a conversation about the Alpinist and about a number of other climbing and Alpinist films for next month's reviewing the news. So I don't want to say too much about this. I don't want to spoil this film, but go look up The Alpinist. It is on Netflix. The Alpinist is a film about a climber, Marc-Andre Leclerc. And I haven't stopped thinking about this film since I saw it several weeks ago. And it was kind of, here's the happy accident part. To get this you know, cinematic profile of Marc-Andre juxtaposed with this written profile about Jeremy Strong. And one thing we can talk about is these are two profiles that I happen to sort of read and watch next to each other about two incredibly obsessive people, both totally obsessed. And I just find such personalities and individuals inherently interesting. And I think we're going to talk more about sort of the nature of obsession in next month's reviewing the news. And um, at a minimum, go watch The Alpinist. What other films, Cody, should we say would be cool for people to like go watch or rewatch? Well, uh, the other one that's on the you know kind of major media networks right now is 14 peaks which i did watch that i was planning on watching both of them kind of back to back but you know i think i was telling it last month where i was like trying to i was just binge watching stuff because i was staying late up late well it wasn't working for my sleep and so i've been trying to sleep instead prioritize that instead of uh of watching tv till i feed my son in the middle of the night so i watch 14 peaks and we can talk about that i would suggest people watch that as like kind of also i haven't watched the alpinist but just as a, a thing to parallel between these two um i will i think we're going to talk about it too it's just like kind of the moment that climbing mountaineering films are having and and mainstream media i mean i was you know, I listened to the Rosillo Potaton. They were talking about 14 Peaks and and the Alpinist. And I was like, oh, wow, this is kind of funny, full circle. Uh, this is what we talk about. So uh, they would talk about the moment of climbing films and maybe kind of rank them. Because I've, I've always said that climbing mountains is follows the perfect story arc. Like it really just makes for good TV makes for good media. And um, that's where ski films are a little harder because, you know, climbing and getting to the summit, that's the crescendo. And they don't really show going down. Well, if you're ski mountaineering, getting down is part of the crescendo and you have this like too long of a crescendo piece. It's actually a challenge I kind of frequently encounter when I'm editing the 50 project is going into this like crescendo of a climbing film. And then you're like, but we're there, we're at the summit, we got, we overcame, but then we also got to ski down and how do we kind of keep that energy flowing, uh, keep the interest flowing when it seems like we've already fully crescendoed. So, um, but yeah, um, good stories, major media showing climbing. It's interesting. Yeah. What else have you been reading or watching? God, not much. There was, there was a lot of football on, so I watched, you know, I think we had like, eight football games in 10 days because of all the COVID outbreaks. So I watched a lot of that. Um, oh, I went to a Warriors game. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty cool. The, um, 
uh, Elise and uh, my friend's wife got us tickets for Christmas as a Christmas present for me and my buddy to go down to a Warriors game. Um, I'll spare over on the story, but it was an absolute nightmare getting to. The game itself was unbelievable. I'd never been to an NBA game. Really, really fun to, to, to go see. Who was it? Warriors versus Denver. So okay. Warriors Nuggets. Um, and that was that was pretty cool. I've kind of gotten more into basketball. I'm totally that bandwagon fan that, you know, grew up in the Bay Area, love all Bay Area teams, didn't like the Warriors because they sucked for 20 years. And then Steph came along. I'm like, wow, this is fun. And I will say it is fun to watch. He makes the game really, really fun to watch. So uh, it was cool to kind of like start to get to see it and then go see it in person because of any sport, like I think football – on TV can almost be sometimes better than it is in person. I think baseball is pretty much the same, except for it's more leisurely day outside. Um, I've heard hockey. I've never been to a hockey game is the best live sport to watch. But what it, what it struck me was that basketball and TV kind of looks easier than it is in person. When I'm watching it in person, like seeing how big these guys are, seeing how fast, how strong, how little space is, how quickly they're getting off shots, how like, oh man, it looked way harder. And like Nikola Jokic from the, the, the Nuggets, that guy is a beast and he is unstoppable. And in person, you're like, I, yeah, you can't stop that guy. Whereas on TV, it seems like you can. So I was, I was pretty, it was cool to see the context of basketball and to realize like how much harder of a game it is in person than it looks on TV. Boy, I could talk a lot here. I'm going to exercise a lot of restraint. I, I will only say this. I have never had a chance to see Steph Curry play in person. That would absolutely be... Actually, right now, if we're thinking about... I still would love to see LeBron play in person. I think LeBron is wild, crazy... LeBron and Steph, but I'm if I had to only pick one, I'd take Steph because, by the way, shout out to my uh, Christmas dinner party homies. We had a nice friend's dinner at Johnny and Aaron's place. We ended up, I couldn't have been happier. It was like the best Christmas present imaginable. The group ended talking about the, ended up talking about the last dance and we did that for like over an hour. And I was like, this is uh, this is a Christmas miracle. Anytime a group in a ski town starts talking, well, about basketball, let alone the Chicago Bulls, you know, the team that I was like going to games and watching back in the day, couldn't have been happier. But um, I was making the, the, the case that night that like, it kind of to your point, like we can turn on TV and see Star Wars and like, you know, Luke fighting Darth Vader and whatever. To see what these individuals are doing in person, like you're in the same room, Jordan in person versus Jordan on a TV, it was kind of mind-blowing. And for whatever reason, I think you're right about the NFL. It's actually kind of better. Like I, I had the chance to watch, I think, the greatest quarterback of all time, seeing Aaron Rodgers play live. I did that this year. And it was cool. But it's like, Watching Aaron Rodgers on a high-definition television, you can actually pick up more nuances of what's going on. The NBA kind of feels the other way for some reason. I I agree. And, like, that was my impetus for going wanting to go to the game. I'm, like, literally talking to my buddy Tristan. I'm like, dude, like, the Warriors are, like, not that far away from us. They're our team. This is possibly – or the the greatest shooter of all time. One of the great – one of the greatest showmans in NBA history is, like – 
we need to go to a game. Like, I got to see this in person once. And I will say, in person, it is unreal. Like, to see the ease at which he makes three-pointers and the quickness and just see. We we showed up for the warm-ups, which I, you know, the legendary warm-ups. And just to watch him casually sink, like, 30 three-pointers in a row. And you're like, imagine being, like, that good at anything. And he's that good at one of the hardest things to do. Like, it's going to take me... 20 shots to make one and that guy is just like thump 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 and it was just like so kind of cool and i agree like those experiences and going to something that like that and seeing some of the greatest people of all time do their thing in person it's like it's pretty cool thing to do i like that since we skipped the nfl talk at the top of the episode we got to the nba near the end so we're nba holes <laughs> we'll, we'll keep it moving but that's cool and i i actually you've I need to get that on my list, like go see Steph in person at some point. So I think the only other thing I'll mention where we should, you know, we can get wrapping things up here, but um, I did just fly to Austria and back. And another thing I learned about myself or remembered about myself is I cannot sleep on airplanes, which you then are just like, you moron. You literally can't go anywhere. If you could just sleep for this, you know, eight or nine hours, you would just wake up and feel great. And so, and I'm, so you kind of, there's a lot of self loathing going on. So, what I did, I actually watched the entirety of the show White Lotus. Mm-hmm. Heard, heard good things about it. And, this, I guess, came out this summer. A number of movie critics that I really love and respect had been kind of gushing about this show. It didn't look that interesting to me, um, but I went through it. I'm still kind of processing this one. I, I I enjoyed it. I liked watching it. It actually does address a number of really important themes. And if you're not intrigued enough yet, then maybe try this. If you're going to watch it, it takes place at kind of a very exclusive resort in Hawaii. And there are a whole lot of class dynamics and interpersonal dynamics that then are kind of going on in this, you know, Petri dish of a Hawaii resort. If this has not grabbed your attention yet, a thing I was thinking about was maybe just think in your head Skip the Hawaiian resort part and think about this as being a ski resort. And maybe that'll help you, you know, as you start to navigate some of the issues at hand there. And um, I don't know, but I I think it is a show worth your time. That's all I'm going to say on that one. Cool. That's good. I, yeah, I generally, we generally align on our recommendations. If you recommend it, I'll probably watch it at some point. If I ever get back to watching things and having time for myself. That'd be great. This really helped this podcast get to get our listeners up above, you know, a thousand. That really hurt. That really hurt, Cody. I, apparently, I need to share analytics with you more. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe I just think it's I'm like on this tiny little podcast. Just me and you. Yeah, just, not a, me, you, and not Elise. I'm like, who the hell wants to listen to us talk for a half hour or an hour and a half? Pardon me. <laughs> it turns out far more people than you you might realize. Yeah. Just not my wife. <laughs> Just not your wife. Someday, yeah. Anything else? Nah, I think that's about it. Otherwise, uh, you know, I think 
We've had an amazing start here in Tahoe. Uh, huge storms. Uh, been, you know, I'm trying to prioritize my things in life and, you know, have less time. And definitely ski touring and skiing is at the highest priority, getting some work done. And my kid, um, well, actually, my kid is the highest priority, but just trying to like everything else from there, you try and prioritize. So I've been getting out of the backcountry a little bit, skiing in the resort a little bit, had a great day out there with uh, Elise. And it's just kind of great to be, to be skiing. It's so, so nice when this place is covered in snow here here i think i'm actually gonna go get on the mountain now so uh yeah and i i mean for all the talk we've had in this conversation about ski areas we're skiing the head wall now and things are not crowded and uh i'm gonna go get out there good. so good get out there have fun hey, hey man appreciate it appreciate the conversation and i feel like this was i don't know I, I feel like we left people more frequently than we normally do with like, go watch this or go read these things. And I don't know, maybe that's all right. I don't feel like, I mean, is that all right? Was that weird? I think so. I mean, we're not here to just strictly give our opinions on everything. We're here to also, you know, get people to to, to read about what we think are important topics right now in the outdoor industry. So, uh, you know, some people there, I think they were exposing into stories they haven't heard. Some people were offering an analysis on things they have heard. So I think it's a good thing. All right. We'll take your word for it and hope the the 1,000 listeners agree with you. That was 100. Oh, 100, right? Yeah, I can't remember. Anyway, right. hey, man. Take care. Talk to you soon. Sounds good. See you, Jonathan. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Cody for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again later this week.